Chapter Eight of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume One, by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Eight. Education and Slavery, A Mob Murder. The Agassiz Theory of Races, My Essay on the Negro Race, My Real Conversion, Transcendental Methodism, Preparations for the Methodist Ministry, A Disappointment in Love, The Shadrach Case in Congress, A Slave's Vision, Rockville Circuit, My First Sermons. My pamphlet on free schools excited no discussion in Virginia. My only important sympathizers were Law Professor Minor of the University of Virginia and Samuel M. Janney, Quaker preacher of Luden. My father was pleased, though he did not express agreement. I looked eagerly into my New York Tribune to see what Greeley would say about it. His paragraph, editorial, was friendly, but I only remember the closing words. Virginia's white children will never be educated till its colored children are free. This shaft went very deep into me, for I found that pro-slavery philosophers considered the free school system a dangerous northern ism. My mere Virginianism had received a number of blows during my residence in Warrenton, notably by the mob murder of a free negro named Grayson, at Culpeper Courthouse. The man had been sentenced for murdering a Mr. Miller, but the evidence against him was weak, while the local demand for a victim was furious. The Court of Appeals had ordered a new trial to take place at Warrenton. Grayson was taken from jail by a mob of several hundred who, as their victim was nobody's property, met but feeble resistance, and hanged, protesting his innocence to the last. On this I wrote in the Warrenton paper, July 20, 1850, quote, The whole affair would read better among the records of the Spanish Inquisition, or of the feudal age of Britain, than by the light of the full noon of the nineteenth century. End quote. The innocence of Grayson was afterwards established, as no doubt the innocence of many of the victims of the bloodhounds, euphemistically called lynchers, would be by fair trial. This was the only case of the Negro murder called lynching that I ever heard of before the Union War, and the indignation throughout the South prevented its being made a count against slavery. I never up to that time had heard any person say a word against the rectitude of slavery. The nearest to it was what my father had said, it is a doomed institution. It was too close to my eyes to be seen that it would ever end was not even prophesied by its northern antagonists. Now, however, when a moral cause, universal education, had taken possession of me, slavery barred my way in every direction. Before my radical Jeffersonianism, the Negro stood demanding recognition as a man and a brother, else he must be treated as an inferior animal. At this moment the new theory of Agassiz appeared that the races of mankind are not from a single pair, 
I had conversed with Professor Baird of the Smithsonian Institution on the subject, and found that he agreed with Agassiz. In June 1850, Agassiz delivered a lecture on the subject in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was expanded into a long article in the Christian Examiner for July. In this manifesto, the professor argued only by implication against the unity of human species. But where he feared to tread, my crudity rushed in. It was not the vanity of a youth under nineteen, but a spirit struggling for existence amid fatal conditions, which led me to announce in the Franklin Lyceum, Warrenton, of which I was a secretary, a theory that the negro was not a man within the meaning of the declaration of independence all of the other members though not anti-slavery exclaimed against the infidelity of the theory though none answered my argument that negroes if human were entitled to liberty my eccentric views were talked about and i found myself the centre of a religious tempest in little warrenton if the negro was not descended from adam he had not like us whites inherited depravity and wherefore our missions to the many non-caucasian races i sat down as wrangler of the new theory surrounded myself with books on races mental philosophy and biblical criticism and achieved fifteen closely written letter pages to prove that mankind are not derived from one pair that the Caucasian race is the highest species, and that this supreme race has the same right of dominion over the lower species of his genus that he has over quadrupeds, the same right in kind, but not in degree. This elaborate essay was not printed, and I had forgotten that it was ever written until fifty years later it came forth from other wrappings of my dead self. It is dated Warrenton, Virginia, December 1850. It vaguely recalls to me the moral crisis in my life, whether it was the dumb answers of the colored servants moving about the house, cheerfully yielding me unrequited services, or whether my eyes recognized in the completed essay a fallacy in the assumption of a standard of humanity not warranted by the facts, the paper was thrown aside. This so-called conversion of my college days had been a boyish delusion, the real conversion came now at the end of eighteen fifty i had caught a vision of my superficiality casuistry perhaps also of the ease with which i could consign a whole race to degradation i do not remember whether or not my theory of negro inferiority was consciously altered but an overwhelming sense of my own inferiority came upon me the last words of my warrenton diary are had a violent fever that night. The fever was mental and spiritual more than physical. When it passed away it left me with a determination to devote my life to the elevation and welfare of my fellow beings, white and black. The man of Nazareth had drawn near and said, What thou dost to the least of these my brothers, thou art doing to me. In December, 1850, a note to my father told him that I had abandoned all idea of practicing at the bar, that I should be home at Christmas, and should apply for admission to the Baltimore Methodist Conference as a minister. Parents, relatives, friends were amazed. By my writings in the Virginia journals, and in the Southern Literary Messenger, 
i had acquired sufficient reputation to gain me a good position in richmond journalism i had studied enough law to take my place at the bar and having eminent relatives in that profession my success in it seemed to be assured i was not in poverty and was moving in the best social circles why then this sudden resolution to become a methodist preacher it was long a mystery to myself but emerson was at the bottom of it i knew by my experience to what depth a teacher's word might strike in an open heart oh that i could be even in a small way able to uplift fainting hearts and guide the groping as that great spirit had uplifted me and was now opening a fair horizon before me had i got hold of emerson's address to the cambridge divinity graduates i might have discovered the inconsistency of his philosophy with any form of orthodoxy but i had only his first and second series of essays these did away with the bounds between sacred and secular by making both sacred so free from theological negations are these essays that they leavened my methodism imperceptibly by idealizing the whole of life as methodism over sanctified it his transcendentalism corresponded with methodist transcendentalism at various points the personal character of spiritual life soul finding the divine in the solitude of the individual life the mission ordained for every human being these are interpretations of the methodist doctrines of miraculous conversion the inward witness of the spirit progressive sanctification and the divine call to the ministry i believe that my study of emerson's essays raised methodism in my eyes for this religious organization was in virginia alive earnest and not much interested in dogmas i cannot remember ever hearing a methodist sermon about the trinity just after i had resolved to enter the ministry a letter came from kate emory giving a cheerful account of visits to her friends in maryland and with no intimation of ill health but she said our correspondence must cease i had just begun to study hebrew with rev dr macphail presbyterian and the works of wesley adam clark watson but all books were dropped and i went off to carlisle to learn my fate she who was to decide it was thin and pale but no considerations of health affected me in the least she had been teased about me my letters had become warm enough to frighten her she cared for no other man so much but she could as yet only offer me her friendship so i went off to hope but with a dull feeling of hopelessness wrote in my journal quote, man was never made i believe to go or look backward on my homeward way i passed a week in washington senator hunter smuggled me into the senate lobby so that i heard the great debate on the boston riot this was on february eighteen eighteen fifty one three days before when the fugitive slave shadrach was on trial in boston the case was postponed till next day and at that moment about forty colored men swarmed into the courtroom shadrach became undistinguishable among them and was spirited away to canada not a blow was struck nobody injured nobody wronged but simply a chattel transformed into a man wrote garrison in the liberator but the incident caused excitement in congress and was described as a riot the new fugitive slave law was beginning to bear its fatal fruits 
only a few months before i had been assisting at the banquet given at warrenton to its author senator mason but now for the first time discovered that the new law was of serious importance i shall never forget the wrath that shrivelled up the already wrinkled face of henry clay nor his sharp voice as he leaped forward and cried quote, this outrage is the greater because it was by people not of our race but persons who possess no part in our political system and the question arises whether we shall have a government of white men or of blacks End quote. i was not anti-slavery and did not doubt at the time that it was a murderous attack on the court but clay's speech and manner grated on me and i was more pleased with the speech of jefferson davis the massachusetts senator davis had tried to soothe the wrath of the compromisers who had predicted the reign of peace to follow their omnibus bill but when he alluded to the common sentiment in massachusetts against the rendition of fugitives a voice that of hale i think cried universal sentiment whereupon jefferson davis said calmly quote, if that be so the law is dead in that state wherever mobs can rule and law is silenced beneath tumult this is a wholly impracticable government it was not organized as one of force its strength is moral and moral only i for one will never give my vote to extend a single arm of the federal power for the coercion of massachusetts End quote. this was in reply to foote who said he had private knowledge that the president fillmore had ordered commodore reed at philadelphia to use all of his marine force if necessary to sustain this law and cited the action of president washington in marching into pennsylvania to crush the whiskey rebellion the debate gave me much to think of i have said that i went to college too soon barely turned sixteen but what must be said of my first entrance on the ministry it was on march seventeenth eighteen fifty one my nineteenth birthday that i was appointed to rockville circuit maryland one of the most important in the baltimore conference there was excitement among our emotionally pious servants at my entering the ministry on the eve of my departure one of these eliza gwynne came late in the evening and desired me to go out to her husband dunmore he met me in the little porch and said quote, mars monk but i will omit his dialect i have had a vision i saw you standing on a hill and one came and blew a trumpet and there came many people from the south and another came and blew a trumpet and a great number came from the north and one sounded a third trumpet and many came from the east and a fourth trumpet and a multitude from the west and a host was around you and to them all you spoke the word of the lord I had no such ambition for myself as Dunmore had for me, and had misgivings as to even a fair success. The vision made on me only an impression of the love our servants bore me. Out there under the stars these humble people, whom I had been pronouncing not quite human scientifically, pressed my hand, and invoked blessings on my head. I went off to my room, deeply moved. It was midnight. I so entered on my Methodist ministry. The black man gave me the only consecration I ever received. Early next morning our hostler brought to the door the handsome chestnut horse which my father had purchased for me, with fine new saddle, 
and the indispensable saddle-bags well stocked with what might be needed on my two days journey to rockville the only advice my father gave me was against relapse into politics let the potsherds of the earth strive with the potsherds of the earth seek higher things my son my road lay past the homes of my near relatives glencairn carmora earlessly and i little dreamed that it was the beginning of a journey that would take me so far away from them all at stafford courthouse i received an ovation from my methodist uncle valentine and aunts my grandparents being too gracious to reveal any regrets they may have felt at my adopting such a profession at aquia church weird in its solitude and dilapidation i paused for a time and tried to picture my great-great-grandfather parson moncure perched in the little black pulpit high up a column and his congregation as they gathered there a hundred years before he was the only clergyman in our family line and of all his sermons written during a long ministry not one sentence is left but the spiritual bequest may be all the more important for being unwritten i passed the night in a rickety tavern at aquoquan and rode on through the dead town of dumfries nothing remained of it but tottering chimneys yet it was once so prosperous that my grandfather dr john moncure daniel settled here for medical practice it was here that he brought his girlish bride from edinburgh and here she died in giving birth to her first and stillborn child i stopped at old poet church to which the washingtons occasionally came from mount vernon and where reverend mason weems who called himself rector of mount vernon sometimes preached first biographer of george washington originator of the cherry tree fable laughed at now weems was yet a striking figure in his time bishop mead whose preaching i remember and others whom i knew had kindly memories of weems the road i was travelling was more lonely than in weems time there was no railway to washington and there was in my boyhood a legend that robbers had their quarters in aquia church if so they must have long before sought some more frequented highway i was startled at meeting one wayfarer between poic church and alexandria a poor corsican with hand-organ to whose tunes i listened rockville circuit was flourishing and arduous at that time it contained most of the present gaithersburg circuit and required hard work for two preachers my senior was the rev william prettyman father of barrett once my college chum mr prettyman and his wife their daughter margaretta and barrett were educated and excellent people and welcomed me to the home they had already formed at rockville methodist itinerancy usually required that the junior unmarried minister on a circuit should have no fixed abode he was supposed to live on horseback with his wardrobe and library in his saddle-bags and otherwise to be entertained in the houses of the brethren near each meeting-house but a room was provided for the junior in the cottage of the widow wilson a mile out of rockville thither i could always repair when i desired not to be a guest sister wilson was a motherly hostess the cottage and garden pleasant and i was always glad to get back to their freedom and pretty walks 
but I could rarely stay anywhere more than a day, as there were about ten appointments to be filled each week, and these meeting-houses were distant from each other five, ten, fifteen miles. My first sermon was given in a small private house, Brother English's, at 3 p.m., Saturday, April 6. Text, Genesis 49, 18. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. My first sermon in a church was the next morning, April 7, at Goshen, on Genesis 4, 9. Am I my brother's keeper? How plain before me now is that scene at Goshen. The junior preacher is an annual, and his first appearance an important event. Goshen was far away in the woods, but the region was populous, and when I rode up that Sunday morning I was appalled by the number of vehicles. And when I looked down on the crowded seats, and felt every eye fixed on me, I had a sort of pulpit fright. I felt that there would be a disappointment. Had a written sermon been admissible, I might have had confidence, but one small page held all my notes. I knew nothing whatever of any one before me. Were they educated? Were they fond of rhetoric? They were apparently well-to-do people, and some impression was on me that a good many belonged to fashionable churches. Not one of them knew that I was about to give my first sermon in a church. I had taken pains with the sermon, and supposed there may have been some response, for I find that I selected it to give on my first appearance in Washington. Foundry, August 19. Among my old papers I have now and then come upon moldy skeletons of my earliest sermons. I cannot think what flesh and blood clothed them, but find that I was in morbid reaction against the worldliness my boyhood envied. On one occasion, hearing that some Methodist young ladies had danced at a ball, I preached so severely against such pleasures that the family resented it and joined another church. End of chapter 8